Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you so much for reminding us already this evening that you brought our souls out of prison, that we should praise you and that we should serve you. And Father, we thank you that we've been translated from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son. And Father, the aim of our lives now is to walk in the paths of righteousness. Father, we know that the law of the Lord is perfect and it enlightens the eyes. And I pray indeed, Father, that our fellowship here may be a lighthouse, Lord, beaming out truth to this nation. Father, we realize you have much building yet to do. But Father, we would say to you, Lord, deal with us as you see fit and build for your own glory. Father, tonight, may, Father, we be helped and may we be protected by the words that I share tonight. In the name of Jesus, I ask it, Lord. Amen. We've been dealing with the subject of authority in the local fellowship. The time before last, I talked about eldership. Last time, I talked about submission. And God, I think, has been really talking to us about what the authority is that he set in the church. I wonder whether I can begin tonight by saying something that is so basic that most of you probably already know it, but perhaps you've never heard it said. And it's this, that without the fall of man, God would be the one who would govern us and who would be the one in authority over us directly. Before Adam sinned, God was the one who gave verbal instruction to them and who fellowshiped with them in the cool of the day. And I know that without the fall, that is how God will govern the whole earth today. The thing that has messed that scene up is the fact that Adam became negative. And upon coming negative, not only was sin something that we all found only too clinging in our lives, but we found that there was a tendency within us to riot and to disobedience. Every man has within him the tendency to do that which he wants to do. Every man has the tendency within him to do that which is right in his own eyes. And it was faced, it, it was when God was faced with this scene of righteousness that in fact he decreed that there would from that time on be set authority over his creation. And God set authority and set others to submit to that authority. That is because man is fallen and because he is basically disobedient. For example, let, let me just give you an example. Even in the angelic realm, you don't just have angels floating about, you have structure among the angels. And you've got some angels who are in authority and others who are submitted to that authority. That's why you have powers and principalities. And I've explained in other places that, of course, some of these are five-star generals and others are the lieutenants and so on. And you have archangels and you have ordinary angels. Even in the angelic realm, you have designated authority. God has said certain angels will be in authority. Now, as far as this earth is concerned, God has also set authority here. For example, in the group that we call the family. In the family, God has said that the parents will be in authority and that the children are to submit to that authority. That's God designated. He has made parents to be in authority. 
in the church, of course, God has put elders, and the believer priests who are not elders are expected by God to submit to the authority of those who are in authority. In the world generally, in society, the Bible is quite clear in Romans 13, it tells us that we are to submit to those who are in authority over us. Whether they're Christians or not is not the issue. What you have to do is to say, if, if this person is designated in our society as in a position of authority, I have to submit to that particular authority. As long, of course, as it doesn't directly contradict what this word says. And we've seen that process in the last few Bible studies. We've seen that principle in the last few Bible studies. The reason that God has set these people in authority is so that even in this fallen, chaotic world, we can have a semblance of harmony, whereas the fall leads to chaos, of course, and a semblance of peace and some degree of peace, if not absolute peace. And that is why God has set authority in our society. That is why in the church today, whether you like it or not, and at first I didn't like it very much, God says there will be those who are in authority and there will be those who submit to that authority. Now, having said that, let's turn to the passage that I ended on last time and remind ourselves of this responsibility that we all have. So let's go to Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. And let me just read it through so that we have a con continuation from last time. Verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And do remember last time I s talked about how the word submit when it's used in the Bible, it's generally the word hupotasso, which means to get into rank, to know what your position is and to respond according to that position. But do you remember last time I ended by saying that the word submit, as used here in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 13, actually is an entirely different word from the word hupotasso. It is in fact the word hupaiku, H-U-P-E-I-K and a long O, Hupaiku, and hupaiko is used here and nowhere else in the New Testament. All right, this is the only place that it's used. And the word submit, as used in verse 17, means this. It means to yield. It means to give up your opposition, to withdraw your opposition. That's actually what it means. It is a gesture of a total giving up of the stand that you were taken. Now, some people use this verse to actually say that, of course, this is the correct role of eldership and the correct role of submission, that you don't have a say and that the elders have you under their soles, you know, I mean the soles of their feet there. Um, in fact, can I say that, that does, actually this verse cannot be used in that type of way. This verse actually shows us something of the reason why the book of Hebrews was written. I think... The reason, I think this verse actually shows us this, that the writer of the book of Hebrews, some say it was Paul, I tend to think, I must confess, it's Apollos, uh, 
But I think that the writer here had either been in touch with or had been informed about the fact that a group of people in this particular church, this particular place, had separated themselves from the meeting of believers. I think probably that they were people who wanted to be born again and to live under the law at the same time. And he heard about them, and this book is written to actually say, your doctrine is wrong. And he goes right through, I think, the whole doctrine that they presented, actually disqualifying it on every count. And you remember in Hebrews 10, he finally says, neglect not the gathering of yourselves together. And what had happened was, so great was the difference that they felt with the elders over this particular thing, that they were beginning not to come to the meetings. And soon, they would have split altogether. And he says, now look, he says, the way some people act, they miss any old meeting they want to. But will you please cut that out, you people? And here he says this, Obey them that have the rule over you, and give up this crusade that you've been on. It's wrong. He comes down firmly on the side of the elders here, right? And he says quite clearly, it's important that you all get back together. You must learn that you have made a mistake at this particular point. All right, having said that then, let's just uh, read on a bit. And this tells you something about the responsibility of elders. We won't spend long on it tonight. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. As I explained last time, this does not mean to say that the elders will be the only ones who will give an account in heaven. It's not going to be, you know, that when you reach up there, they'll say, oh yes, you're a member of the fellowship. Well, you're okay, you pass through. It's all right. Oh, you're an elder. I've been waiting for you. It's not going to be like that. All of us will give an account of our lives. But this says that elders have the responsibility to watch for your souls. And they have that responsibility in the same way that a shepherd has for watching over the flock. A shepherd has the responsibility of leading a flock into the pasture. And once they're in that pasture, and in that particular place, he then has the responsibility to make sure there are no wolves around. If a wolf comes running, he goes running as well, and they meet and clash. He also has, of course, the, re the responsibility of deciding where the sheepfold is going to be built in a particular field. Now that is what an elder has to do. But above everything, an elder is not separate from the flock. Remember, it says, don't lord it over them, but be examples. And it's often said, you know, that in the, the Middle East or in Eastern countries, unlike in Britain where the shepherds round up their flocks from behind, they drive them on, in the Middle East, they lead them, right? They actually walk in front. They go the way first. I love that little story. Perhaps you've heard this little story of a chap who'd been a good Christian. He'd been to loads and loads of Bible studies, and he'd learnt that in the East... Always the shepherd leads his flock. So when he first went out to the east, of course, he had that bit of information tucked away in his brain. He went out into a country district, and they saw a flock of sheep. And much his amazement, instead of a chap leading them, there was a chap behind with a big stick who was driving them on. Well, he thought, what's this about, you know? He said, I know that shepherds here, at least I've been taught, always lead their flock. And he actually went up to this man, he said, excuse me, he said, or words to that effect, excuse me, he said, but um, I thought shepherds always led their flocks around here. And the man said, oh, they do. But the man said, I'm the butcher. <laughs> and 
And that's exactly true. The man was leading them straight into the abattoir. And I would say this, that if in any fellowship you go to, the elders actually are driving and cajoling, they've got a big stick which they're using every single meeting and so on, I would suggest you might have butcher types, you know, actually over you. That's not what elders are supposed to do. They must not lord it or butcher uh, the saints of God, lord it over or butcher the saints of God. They have to lead the saints of God. Now, they will give an account for that. And this is an awesome responsibility. It means this, that actually, while elders must be given honor, they have the potential of receiving double honor, but they also have the potential of receiving double condemnation. If you keep your finger just in the place and go to James chapter 3, look what it says in James in chapter 3 and verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And that's it. An elder has the potential for double condemnation as well as double honor. And it's an awesome responsibility. And so it says, they watch for your souls as they that must give account. And then it says that they may do it with joy and not with grief. In other words, obey them and submit that they may give an account with joy and not with grief. And those who are in positions of responsibility have an arduous enough task. We all have an arduous enough task when we have to come against the devil and against the things of the world. But when you also have a flock who, is, uh, who are actually divided and, uh, you know, in problems, that actually adds sorrow to the already difficult lot. And so really this is actually saying, look, do you know the sorrow you are causing to your own elders by being this type of person? And it's beseeching them, get back into line, that these elders may have joy in their lives and not sorrow. For that is unprofitable for you. And, one, and may I say this, that it's important in your dealings with eldership that you realize these are not self-appointed men, but they've been appointed by God. And God fights for his appointed ones. In fact, you know, one of the reasons I have so much peace in my own life is because some years ago the Lord gave me a little verse in Isaiah 54 verse 17, which you know very well. And I would say every elder needs to make this verse their own. Every Christian needs to make this verse their own. It just says this, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Or as the psalmist says, touch not mine anointed. And we have to be careful in our dealings with elders. I have to be careful when I meet other elders that in fact I always remember that these men are appointed by God. All right, having said all of that then, I now want to go on to a consideration of the topic of membership and troublemakers. In other words... A, a consideration of those who are with us and those who are against us. And I think the verse I want to point you to, first of all, is found in the book of Amos, chapter 3 and verse 3. Amos 3.3, 3, which is one of those little verses you should know absolutely off by heart. It's terribly simple. In Amos 3.3, 3, it just says this, and this is fundamental for fellowship life. Can 
two walk together except they be agreed? That's the question. And by the way, the answer is no, they cannot. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And that is fundamental when we're talking about membership of a fellowship. Now, we know, don't we, that often you can have members of a family who just cannot walk together because they are not agreed. Here they are, they've got the same mother, they've got the same father. They have the same genetic makeup, right? Perhaps the same blood type even, right, coursing through their veins. And yet very often within that family, there's such a divide in mentality that they can't bear one another and the quicker they all separate, the better for everyone. And what this is saying isn't that you don't belong to the same family. The question is, can you, as members of that family, actually get along sufficiently for you to walk forward together? That's the question that it's asking. Now, as families have trouble, so very often Christians have trouble. Now, let me make it one thing clear. As soon as you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are born of God. You become a son or a daughter of God the king. There's no question about that. We all become a member of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is quite clear. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. That's not the issue. And by the way, don't be blackmailed by anyone. I had to minister to a chap a few weeks ago who decided to leave a particular fellowship and the elders there said to him, if you leave our fellowship, you are no longer a member of the body of Christ. Well, that's rubbish. And uh, that's the quickest way for that young man to end up in a mental hospital. That is absolute nonsense. He is a member of the body of Christ. The question for us isn't whether you are born again or whether you're a member of the church universal. The question is, who is a member of the local fellowship that meets in this particular place? That's the question. And according to this verse, if we are to meet as a fellowship, we have to actually be agreed if we are going to walk on. And I would say, therefore, a definition of a member of a fellowship is this. A member of a fellowship is one who shares the aims, the objectives, and the vision of the fellowship as a whole. I don't think you can consider yourself a member if you do not. You may come along to the meetings and, praise God, you have religious freedom. That's wonderful. But I think there has to be a root of common agreement for us to move together as a fellowship. And the members are specifically those who hold dear what the fellowship holds dear. So in our own fellowship, for example, you would have to think that the Word of God is very important. You probably think that it's very neglected, which I do, and that we as a fellowship here have... Our, part of our responsibility is to get the Word of God out as far as this country is concerned. You would also, I think, share a passion for body ministry, a passion for the believer priesthood. I think you probably would. I think probably you would have a passion that we should all get our lives dealt with and sorted out. I think this is the type of agreement that would mean that you are a member of the fellowship rather than just a person who, who worships in the fellowship. There's a difference between those two. I also think that membership implies continuance and dependability within a fellowship. You know, you can share all the objectives, but the question is, will you stand up and be counted and will you stick with it through thick or thin? That's really what we mean, I think, by membership. In the early days of the fellowship, 
something happened which we hadn't designed, but it just came about. When we were probably about 20 or something like that, we began to notice that people who came to our meetings fell into one of two camps. There were those who we called the core of the fellowship, and there were the others, you see? And it was odd because we hadn't designed this, but we noticed that there were some that we could really depend upon and rely upon. And these people we knew were really with us. And through thick or thin, they would be there. And after a while, we used to hold a meeting on the Friday evening for what we called the core. I never could decide whether it was C-O-R-E or C-O-R-P-S. I could never decide. E, perhaps. I, can't, I could never decide, and I don't know to this day. But all we knew was that these were people who were really excited about what God was doing here. And we used to have these meetings. We knew that they'd stand up and be counted. And in those days, we belonged to the fellowship here. You were a real nutter. I mean, you were considered really beyond reach. Forgive the vernacular just there. But you were really considered rather strange. And you had to stand up and be counted to belong to the fellowship. Perhaps it's still true. I don't know. But certainly in those days it was true. And these people we knew would stand up and be counted, and we knew something else about them, that even that when we went through fat days, they would be there. But if we went through the leanest of lean days, they would be there as well. And some of those Friday night meetings were traumatic events, bloodletting events. <laughs> and you couldn't have such meetings, save that you knew everyone was absolutely there because God had sent them to be there. You knew you could depend upon them. And I'll tell you, I believe that, in, that something was achieved in those Friday night meetings that we used to have. They were painful. They were hard work. But somehow there was white, hot metal created. And there was a forging work done, which meant that there was a link between everyone there. And I do believe our own fellowship could not possibly have grown in the way it has without that type of linkage being established. You see? But we knew we could trust them. And I believe in every fellowship, you must know who you can trust. You've got to know who is with you, and you've got to know the degree of their commitment. You must. This is something you must discern. Now, in some places, you actually write your name on the list. But you see, that's not going to do it. Any old fool can sign his, his name on the list and say, oh, I'm a member, you know. But that doesn't make you a member. Right? There are so many sleeping partners in the body of Christ. It's terrible. You know, people who in name have their name written up there, but who are fast asleep. And I meet ministers all the time, you know, especially from the established churches, I have to say. And I say, oh, how many members have you got? Oh, we've got 250 on the roll. How many have you got on the roll? Well, we haven't got anyone on the roll. <laughs> but then they always say, oh, I'm doing all the work myself. Whenever I want someone to do something, I can't find anyone to do anything. And here are all these members, you know, and they're all written there, but that's not membership. And people, other ministers in this town of ours, uh, this city of ours in Chichester, have actually said, you know, oh, you've got so many people in your fellowship who are prepared to share the load. And that's true, but I would say we have a lot of members in the fellowship. You see, that's, that's my own uh, belief in all of this. Now, we've got to know, and all of us have got to, to know in our own hearts exactly where a person stands. They may come to the meetings. The question is, are they a member? Do they share the same vision? And are they prepared to go through thick and thin for the thing? In the early church, they knew 
who was with them and who wasn't. They knew it. And so in some of Paul's letters, he actually says, you've got some among you, you know. They look as if you're, they're with you, but they're not with you at all. And in some of his letters, he names them. I mean, that's tough stuff as well, when it was read publicly from the, the pulpit or whatever they had in those days, you see? Terrible stuff. And yet that's what, they, what used to happen. Well, we have problems that Paul didn't have. You see, we have uh, cars and things that zip people along roads. And today we suffer, I think, from two major problems. First, you have fellowship hoppers. And there are some professional people, you know, who hop from fellowship to fellowship. And they, these are professional nectar tasters, right? They know good stuff when they see it. And they'll go round. But unlike a butterfly who actually does some good in the nectar receptacle, these do not do any good, you see. And some places, and I, know, I could name some people who do this, they stay in the fellowship while it's thriving. The minute difficult days come, they're on to the next thriving fellowship. Then that begins to go down, they're on to the next one. And they're on to the next one. And so it goes, as if, of course, it has n I have no responsibility in the matter. I'm here simply to be fed by this group and this group and this group and this group. Now that's wrong, you see. That is not membership, and it's actually something that God will hold you to account for doing. The other thing we have in these days, loads of fair-weather friends. Not us as a fellowship, but the church generally. Lots and lots of fair-weather friends who, when things are fat, why, they get fat with the rest. But when you have to trip, pull your belt in slightly, they want to be fat. So they remain fat, you see. And very often you'll find that fair-weather friends vanish when the, the going gets tough. In the early church, they knew those who would be blessed with them, but who would also stand and suffer with them. And very often, you know, you have to have problem times for these truly to be shown. Problem times, dry meetings, and all the rest, they do a wonderful thing in highlighting who's a member and who isn't. Let me just show you one passage that actually says that. In 1 Corinthians and chapter 11, where Paul is just getting on to talk about the communion, he makes an amazing statement. In verse 18 and verse 19, this is what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. <clears throat> For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And this isn't just slight disagreements. This is actual groupings. People would sit in a different part of the church because they didn't want to sit with the others. I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must be also heresies, that means sects or groups among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So he says, in the Corinthian church, the divisions serve a marvelous purpose. Because you're so divided, you know exactly who's approved in the midst. There's absolutely no question about it. Well, that's a good thing, he says. That's the one good thing. This is the Romans 8, 28 situation right, concerning a division in a fellowship, you know, a major disagreement and a major split. At least you know those who are with you. And that knowledge is worth an awful lot, it really is. I must have told you before about the church uh, behind the Iron Curtain, where a group of uh, soldiers rushed in, armed to the teeth, and pointed the gun at the whole congregation, and actually said, we're going to kill a lot of you. But if any of you uh, now want to, rec you know, recant and say, you're no longer part of this, you can go. And, the, and half the congregation left. 
And then they locked the doors, and then they started embracing all the Christians because they were born again. And what they didn't want was to have people who were half-hearted in the thing, you see. And they had a wonderful time of fellowship, these soldiers and the ones who were left. Now, that's lovely, you see, because they had a simple way of proving who the real members were. The others were members in names, in name, but they weren't really members. And I know that God may not use that in our land, but he uses other things in our fellowships that we might know who's with us. Generally, may I say, over commitment, I think people fall into four main camps. And everyone in this room and the other half of the fellowship or the other people who are away at the moment, perhaps babysitting or whatever, they fall in one of these four groups as well. I would say that you are either in these. You either have incomplete incomplete uh, commitment. Secondly, insincere commitment. Thirdly, inconsistent commitment. Or you have total commitment. You're in one of those groups if you're in a, a, and around our fellowship. One of those groups. Oh, that everyone was in group four. Then, we, then the total numbers that turned up at the meeting would all be members. Because I think it's only those with total commitment who really and truly in their hearts can count themselves as members of a fellowship. Let's have a look. First of all, incomplete commitment. And we all know people like this. They're prepared to come along to the meetings because every good Christian should actually go to church. And they like to sing the choruses and, and all the rest. But there are definite limits as far as their commitment is concerned. Some people, it may be money. Well, we'll come along, the odd pound put in there, but you're not getting any more. Uh, other people will give as much money as you want, but they, as long as you don't bother me, you know, I'm a busy man, and I don't want to be bothered very much, okay? Or they'll say, well, I'll come along, but uh, please don't ask me to do anything, because if you ask me to do anything, I'm not going to like it, you know, and I'm going to find myself a church where I don't have to do anything. Now, that's incomplete, incomplete uh, commitment. And that's all right as long as we know who, ha who is incomplete in their commitment. That's fine, as long as you know who they are. The problem comes when you don't. And then you have a rather rude awakening at a particular time. Insincere commitment. Now, these are people who really look as, as if they're committed to the work of the Lord in a particular area, but they're in it for the wrong reasons. And some people you know join themselves to something, but really for what they can get out of it. I've known ministers actually do this. They join themselves to a group, but really they either want the group's money to support them. You know, it's a hard job being a minister. must have money coming in. Now, that's insincere commitment, do you see? They say they're committed, but they're not really committed to the aims in that particular thing. It's more that they've got themselves in mind. Or some people want to use a group to launch themselves into ministry. You know, oh, if I could come and be based there, boy, we could really take the world, and so on. And that's an insincere form of commitment. And we'll see something of that a little later on. Number three, you have inconsistent commitment. This is difficult. And here you've got the type of person absolutely on fire. Oh, it's all wonderful for a month. And then the next month, sorry, fella, it's switched off. Next month, oh, great. And then switched off. And you, every time you ring one of these, you've got to know whether they're on or off at this time. You know, and you really need a, a sort of um, clue as to whether they're on or off. And uh, very often the inconsistent one will verbally say, oh, sure, yeah, really in the fellowship. Never see them or anything, but no, sure, we're really there, boy. 
all of these, the first three, in incomplete, insincere, inconsistent, they're all generally excellent with their mouths, right? Excellent, full of the right words. But it's the total that I'm interested in. And a total commitment means this, that you really do see that God has called you to this place and that you have a short life and that this is the burden that he has given you. You see? And I would say it's the last one that is the true member. That doesn't mean to say you'll do everything you're asked to do. You'll obviously pray about it. It doesn't mean to say you give all your money and all your time. But what it does mean is that in your heart relationship with the Lord, you're really uh, of one mind with the people he's put you among. All right? So that's a total commitment. May I say this? I'm totally committed to the work in this place. There's not a question in, in my mind. And if you were around me for a little time, you would soon see how committed I am to this place, even when I'm not here. Now, obviously, my ministry has grown from this fellowship, right? My ministry isn't apart from this fellowship. It's grown from it. But even when I'm away, as my wife will tell you, my first thought is here always. On a Sunday morning when I'm, uh, you know, busy ministering, my first word almost to Ros, may not be my first word, but it's one of my first thoughts is we must pray for the fellowship. Let's really ask God to bless them back at home. And I'm always thinking, you know, if the meeting I'm taking is at 11 o'clock, I'm thinking quarter to 11, they'd just be beginning now. And I've got you in my mind, you see. And then I pray, and uh, when I was at Eastbourne, we ended at half past 12. And as I put my head down to pray at the end of the meeting, I was thinking, boy, they'll be going home now. Do you see? Now that's commitment in my heart. If ever I should miss a meeting, I don't, some people, you know, they miss a meeting, it's out of sight, out of mind. Forget it. I would say they lack commitment. They're acting as if the fellowship is something apart from them. I can't do that. And should I ever babysit, right, which I do occasionally, or should I be away, I tell you, I'm really concerned and burdened in my heart for the meeting that I am missing. That, I think, is what I mean by membership. You see, you share the one heart. You don't miss a meeting lightly. Not at all. Because you know if you're not there, other pillars have got to stand in. In the gap, as it were. So you bear the responsibility very faithfully. And, and if I am away, as soon as I can get to a phone, I get to the phone. And normally, my, one of my first remarks is, what was the meeting like? You know? And if I hear it was a, well, pretty dry or low-key meeting, I just feel devastated inside. I mean, I feel so burdened inside from the Lord. You see, I really do. And then I think, oh, Lord, you know, I should have been there or something like that. Well, that's my commitment, you see. It's the burden that I have from the Lord because I feel that this is where God has put me in this particular place. But I believe every person in the body of Christ has got to take on similar responsibility. That's it because God needs all of us to be pillars in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, it is important. And I would say if you find yourselves in one, two, or three, you really have to get together with the Lord and you've got to do a bit of talking, all right, uh, as far as the Lord is concerned. May I also say one other thing? When we reached the size where we had to then begin having two meetings on a Sunday morning, one in Bognor and one in Chichester, it was very interesting, the timing. And when we decided that we'd actually divide in a July, do you know one of the reasons in my mind was this? I knew everyone would be going on holiday in August. I knew it. I also knew we'd be getting visitors in and I knew that, therefore, it would be a real test as far as the fellowship was concerned. August would be a real test month. 
But I knew this, that really August would sort out who's really with us and who wasn't with us. I knew that. Because those meetings, the handful, as it were, you know, some of the meetings in Chish only had 60 or 70 or 80 in them. And I knew it would put everyone's back against the wall. But I also knew that once August was over and other people started coming, it would be so thrilling to see everyone back and encourage. But I would say that that was a major test for everyone in our fellowship. And I think the vast majority of the fellowship got through really wonderfully at that time. But you see, that tests your dependability and whether you are prepared to continue with what God has called you into. And they're the people God's looking for, people who really will continue through thick or thin, because they have the vision and they know they're called of God to be in that particular place. All right, how does uh, eldership fit in with membership? Well, let's just have a look at that in John and chapter 10. Now, John 10 is a, a wonderful chapter. There's so much in it, you can read it every time and get something different. It's really wonderful. And I want to read three verses from 1 John and chapter 10. <clears throat> Sorry, not 1 John, the Gospel of John and chapter 10. John 10, 1, 2, and verse 7. John 10, the Gospel of John 10, 1, 2, and verse 7. And Jesus says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And here's a sheepfold, and they used to have several flocks together, and a man who was a true shepherd always came in through the door. Always. Never caught him climbing over the wall or in through the window. Never. But he, that in, uh, but he that comes in another way, well, he's a thief and robber. So you could easily recognize this one. So the door is the way into the sheepfold. Then verse 7, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, of course, this has many, many meanings. The obvious one is that Jesus is the only way to get into salvation. He's the only door that there is. And there are many, many other people who try and come into the sheepfold by another way. You know, well, you don't need Jesus Christ, I do it by meditation. Right? You don't need Jesus Christ, I'm a Muslim. And you know, we all worship the same God, we'll all get there in the end. The man who preaches that is a thief and a robber, and it's not true. And sometimes in our own meetings, we occasionally get the odd Jehovah's Witness <laughs> who comes in the midst, or the Mormon, and because we have body ministry... They stand up and they're ready to speak. The trouble is they're not a member of the body. So that disqualifies them immediately. And they've been going a little while and all of a sudden we realize just what they're saying and up we jump. The same is a thief and a robber and so he is. He's in there for no good purpose. All right. The way into the church then is only through the door. And any man who claims he's a member of the body of Christ and yet really he's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ He's a liar, he's a thief, he's a charlatan, right? And he's great danger. You've got to beware of them. I also feel this, and this is an important lesson, that this also tells us that any man who is ministering to the flock of God has to be in right relationship with Jesus. And I feel that's very important. 
For there are many who would love to be ministers, and yet there are many whose relationship with the Lord is absolutely off-base and wrong. And may I warn all of you, as my position as a teaching elder, may I warn you that when you receive ministry from a person, you must know that his, relation, his or her relationship with Jesus is correct. If it is not correct, you may pick up more than you bargain for. I mean, for example, if uh, you had a, a Sunday school teacher who was an adulterer, right, or who was a rebellious person, would you allow your children really to be under that particular person? The answer surely is no, because they might pick up the rebellion that is in that particular person. I certainly wouldn't let my two children go under such a person. I wouldn't. And similarly, you must not submit yourself to the ministry of anyone who is in a wrong relationship with Jesus. And you need enough discernment to discern what their relationship is with the Lord. Now that's very important. As far as elders are concerned, I think we can say this, that elders are, of course, under shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. The elders are the under shepherds. And I would say that, first of all, the elders are there to act as a sort of door in a fellowship. In other words, if a person wants to be a member of the fellowship, that is to really say, I belong to this place, I think you must beware of trying to do it without the elders knowing about it. You get this occasionally, you know, someone comes in, they come to the meetings, they're really putting their lot in, yet they don't know any of the elders. And I feel it's important that any person who is new in the fellowship is directed to one of the elders so that one of the elders knows them anyway. In that particular way, the elders can guard against the thieves and the robbers who actually come into the midst. I would also say that a man who is ministering on any level in the fellowship needs to be in right relationship as far as the elders are concerned. It doesn't mean to say he has to think they are wonderful or he has to feel they're right on every issue. That's not it. But in his heart, he's got to be basically right. A member, after all, is someone who says, these are the men that God has appointed over the work that I belong to. And you must have that basic realization in your heart concerning the elders. And if you are receiving ministry from anyone, and before long you find that they're out of line as far as the eldership is concerned, in other words, there's a real wrong attitude, I would say, again, you're in great danger as we'll see just a little later on. So you must check that the people that you are receiving ministry from are in right relationship as far as the elders are concerned. I would say we're pretty safe as a fellowship generally over this at the moment. Certainly uh, I would pick it up, you know, if there was something seriously wrong as far as all these things were concerned. The elders, therefore, in a way, are the door through which people come in and the door through which people are approved. May I just tell you of one frightful experience I had. I was actually ministering at um, a fellowship along the coast here. And uh, the elders were a bit cool when I walked in through the door. And I thought, oh, they've had a rough time. And I said, how are things going? Oh, they, they're going very well. And they said, but we had a chap who's a member of your fellowship came along to us last week. And I said, really? Yes. And, well, when we heard he was a member of your fellowship, we thought... Uh, you know, if he wanted to share, he's free to share. And he stood up and absolutely gave appalling ministry, which really caused trouble in their fellowship. And I said, well, who was he? And they mentioned his name. I never heard of the fellow. And I rang around some of the elders, you know, and I said, have you heard of this chap? Never heard of him. 
And in fact, what had happened was, this fellow had been coming to, I think, Sunday morning meetings in the fellowship. He'd been arriving late, leaving early, you see, and he'd been doing that for several weeks. And of course, uh, well, he needed a badge, so he chose the Church of the Christian Fellowship badge. And as soon as he used that badge, you know, they, they sort of opened the door. But do you see, that was totally without any knowledge of the elders, and certainly the elders would never have approved him, and never even have said he was a member of this particular fellowship. There's a lovely little verse found in Kings. Can we go to 1 Kings? Because I remember some years ago reading this verse, and it struck me that this really shows the ministry of elders in this respect. In 1 Kings... And chapter 7, and there's, it's a very small verse, verse 21. <clears throat> and here Solomon is building the temple. In 1 Kings 7, 21 and onwards. And this is the way into the temple. And look at this, this is just, I think, a parallelism of eldership. Verse 21, And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jashin, which means he will establish. And he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz, in him is strength. So one pillar was called he shall establish, and the other pillar was called in him is strength, and I think these two things are part of the ministry of elders. And do you notice they're on the way in? And therefore, I would say to anyone here, if you really uh, wish to join the fellowship, the way is always by approaching one of the elders and actually getting to know just one of the elders, that's all, so that that elder knows who you are. And other people in the fellowship, if someone wants to join, put them along to one of the elders so that one of the elders gets to know them. Just as we had a meeting on a Friday evening just for the core group. So I think the local area group meetings that we have, no matter when they meet during the week, are for members only, I would say. And I would say that a person who goes to one of these is showing that they are committed. And that's why many of them have problems sometimes and why they're tough, those groups. But they're, they're, they're designed by the Lord to really forge a relationship between people. And this is the way he did it in the early days, and that's the way he's doing it at the moment. All right, now there's membership then. Someone who shares the aims, objectives, the vision of the fellowship, who is prepared to stand up and be counted, who will be dependable and will continue through thick and thin. And someone also who recognizes that these men are those that the Lord has appointed over the task in this area. You can't write your name on the list to say all of that, all right? But we've got to discern it individually and as a fellowship. And that means that people can come in and we've got to be able to discern, are they, is their um, commitment to the fellowship incomplete, insincere, inconsistent, or total, which is it, all right? And, and of course, their commitment to the Lord, which is even more important than all of that. Right, having seen membership then, let's now go on to this subject of troublemaker. Troublemakers. You see, today we're seeing those who are with us and those who look as if they're with us but are against us, in actual fact. And we've got to face the fact immediately that whenever there's the work of God, you will always have Satan rising up against it. 
It will always happen. In fact, if Satan doesn't attack the work, I think you're probably not the work. That's what I would think. If he can afford to leave you alone, I don't think you're achieving anything. So the attack will come, and we must all expect it to come without inviting it to come. There's a difference between those two. And some people say, oh, I've really done this for the Lord. Satan's bound to get at me now. Satan says, okay, with a visiting card like that, I'll uh, come along. You don't do things like that. But when he comes, you've got to be discerning enough to recognize that he's there. And in the Bible, if you read the New Testament, you'll find that the later a book was written, the more about troublemakers it contains. One of these days, I'm going to work it out as a percentage. And you will see that they start off with hardly a mention of troublemakers, but as time goes on, it gets more and more and more devoted to troublemakers. And in fact, in the book of Jude, you know, oh, it's a tragic book, the book of Jude. He begins, I think it's in verse 3, by saying, I wanted to write about our common salvation, but it's needful for me to talk about, you know, our fight for the faith. And then he starts going on about all these troublemakers. Oh, it's a real tragedy when you look through these books. But Satan began moving in. You can see it just in the book of Acts. Right? Just in the book of Acts. Can I just show you how we see it in the book of Acts? In Acts 1, we have the events concerning Jesus being taken up into heaven described. And there you have the appointment of Judas' replacement right, by the, the church, the man who replaced Judas Iscariot. That's Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those in the upper room. You have Peter's first sermon, and you have the church growing in one day from 120 people to 3,120 in one day, without tape recorders. <laughs> right? That's Acts chapter 2. Then you come on, on to Acts chapter 3, and there you get the first miracle done. Peter's second sermon is given, and the membership of the church goes up from 3,120 to 8,120. Right? That's a pretty good beginning, isn't it? In chapter 4, then, persecution begins, and the authorities begin attacking the church. Peter and John are arrested, and the church thrives. Isn't that good? And then we come to Acts chapter 5. Let's just turn to the beginning of Acts chapter 5. I want to see one word. That's all. One word in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, verse 1, we get the word, but... It begins with but. And this is the first but found in church history. This is after the persecution of chapter 4. But, it says, and now you know you've got trouble. And where does the trouble come from? Outside the church? No. It comes from within the church. Here's Ananias and Sapphira, truly born again believers. Truly born again. And they are the troublemakers in the midst. Now, I've actually dealt with Ananias and Sapphira earlier on in this series in tape, I think, number two, which is called Commune or Community. But here they are, and they are troublemakers. 
Now, what was their problem and what was the reason that God actually uh, used his right of capital punishment and he destroyed them, right? He knocked them out of this life. What was their sin? It wasn't that uh, they hadn't given everything to the Lord. In fact, they were never asked to sell their property in the first place. Now, I make this clear on that particular tape. No one was asked in these days. It was a voluntary offering if you wanted to do it, to give everything to the work of the Lord. Their sin wasn't either that they only gave a certain percentage of the money to the church. That wasn't their sin. No percentage was asked for. If they'd said, well, we're going to sell this land and give you 30%, the early church would say, praise the Lord. Thank you very much. We'll have it. You keep the 70. That's your property. You must do with it as, as the Lord leads you to deal with it. That wasn't their sin. Their sin was that they were pretending to give 100% and they weren't giving 100%. That was their sin. Their sin was one of hypocrisy. You see the problem. So here they were, they wanted all of the glory of being seen to give 100%, and yet they weren't giving 100%. And uh, the little verse, you know, Ananias is carried out, and Sapphira comes looking for him, and Peter says, tell me, did you sell the lamb for thus much? And she says, yes, for that, thus much. And he said, right, well, they're just back from burying your husband, just on time. They'll bury you as well. And that was it. You might say that's drastic. Why did God do that? Let me tell you why he did it. Because the damage these two could have inflicted upon this young church was so enormous that God had to remove them altogether from the scene. And I have learnt this, and it remains true today, the church has never suffered harm from outside attack. Never. And the fellowship has never suffered harm from outside attack. You thrive under outside attack. But today, the church stands in peril every day of its life from within its own ranks. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again tonight. Our fellowship, like every other fellowship, has a destruction button in the midst of us. This fellowship, if it's ever upset, it's upset from inside, not from outside. And we've got to realize that this is the case. And here, the church was in mortal danger. If this type of attitude spread in the early church, it would have held up the spread of the whole church. And God knew it was less tragic to have these two believers removed to heaven to be with him than to leave them there as a canker in the body of Jesus Christ. And I have learned something. We all long for the addition to the church. We all long for multiplication in the church. But I've learned this, that sometimes you've got to have subtraction first. Today, God doesn't often, doesn't often, notice the word often, subtract in the way that he subtracted here. If he did, do you know that whenever a church, uh, if in our day a church was built, do you know not only would they have to provide a car park, right, and a creche, they'd have to have a mortuary as well. Because this type of hypocrisy is rife today as it's never been rife in any other generation. Always been there in the church, but it's rife today. Oh, yes, 100% committed. Of course we're 100% committed. Of course. Sure. And there's not, not 100%, there's 70%. Why don't you say, well, I'm 70% committed. You know, yeah, God's got a few more areas to deal with yet. We'd have to build a mortuary, right? We'd have to look at some of these properties and say, well, have they got a crematorium at the back? <laughs> that would be the question. How far is it now to the local graveyard, you know? We've got so much of this going on in the body of Christ. 
Well, sometimes there's got to be subtraction first. And I can actually tell you of works where certain individuals are holding up the whole work because they're expecting the whole work of God in that place, the eldership and everything else, to bow the knee just to them. And sometimes they've got to be removed before the work can go on. And there are plenty of fellowships and churches around who have been uh, soft-shoeing it, you know. They've, uh, oh, well, we don't want to upset him. Oh, we mustn't upset them. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And the whole work has stopped dead because they will not have subtraction before they can have addition. Well, I'm not afraid of subtraction. I'm not. In fact, I pray often, at least once every two years, I would say, that we should go through a pruning in our fellowship. And do you know, my wife will tell you, as soon as I start praying it, we just wait for the results. We do. And we find people just fading out, you know. And I commit them to God. I say, Lord, just bless them where they're going. But all I know is we cannot move on unless there's a purging. I don't normally have anyone in mind, you'll be pleased to hear. But it always happens. And I think we, in the body of Christ, are far too emotional about this. And we notice here that the Bible is not coy about dealing with this type of thing. It's direct. The work of God is so important. It must go on. And at times we're going to have to say, no, we will not submit to that. We won't submit to it. And then the work of God can proceed. And this is very important. I'm going to now go through a whole number of Bible verses that talk about what the Catholics would call excommunication. But what we would call, uh, well, just not being too keen on someone. And you'll be quite surprised at how direct the Bible is. In fact, in these days where the word is, oh, but you've got to love everybody, which generally means not just loving them, you've got to put up with whatever they do, you'll find the Bible is contrary to that. You know, you don't find that. Can I just show you, and this might quite amaze you as we go through, and I've picked a few. In fact, I've listed about 14 or 16 at home, but uh, these are just a, a few. If you want the complete list, come and see me sometime. All right, let's go to Matthew and chapter 18, first of all. Matthew 18, and beginning... Verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15 onwards. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Now, this isn't a personality problem, right? It's not a little disagreement over some matter that you want to blow into something big. That's not it. This is a major sin against you. Something that the Bible would condemn, and he's done it. He may have stolen part of your property, right? There is some thing wrong that the law of God would say is a serious error at this point. And your brother has committed this trespass against you, and you go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now notice, he doesn't gossip about it right round the church. He doesn't say, do you know what she's done to me? She's blah, 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 and off he goes. Doesn't say that. What you then do, if they won't listen to you, it's your private matter, you call in two or three so that the two or three witnesses can hear the sin that has been perpetrated against you and perhaps against your family. Right? That's it. Okay, so two or three go in, 
And if he neglect to hear them, in other words, he won't get right over this particular matter, tell it unto the church, which is specifically the elders, and then a public announcement concerning the thing. But if, if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and as a publican. In other words, have nothing to do with him at all. This is a major fault. Now, if you come to me and you've had a personality disagreement with someone else, and you've taken a couple of friends around, you've really had it up, but it hasn't been solved, I'm not prepared to announce it to the whole church. Right? That's not it. I would say both of you need to apply the cross of Jesus Christ to your lives. This is a major fault that I can identify scripturally. If this person refuses to get right, then have nothing to do with that man again. Don't say, oh, well, we've just got to love him in. You heard that said, used all the time. You don't find that here. And you might say, oh, yeah, but this is the gospel. Ah, there are plenty of other scriptures. You don't have to worry. All right? Let's go to the next one. Romans, I'll go through the Bible so that you don't have to chase around. In Romans chapter 16... Romans and chapter 16, verse 17. This is an important one. And I believe that this is an individual one. This is not a matter that they are removed from the church and all the rest. This is an individual matter of discernment. In verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. And the word avoid means lean away from them. Right? Don't turn your back on them, but just, uh, you know, you don't really want anything to do with these particular people. And their divisions, right, which is something that causes splits among people. They actually cause you to go off your brother and sister. You were in fellowship with them, but then they start up, and suddenly you find, you know, I don't like them either. That's a split. Or an offence is a manner of behaviour that actually stirs you up and gets you wrong, you know, and puts you out of fellowship. Well, lean away from them. You know, don't be keen to be with them, but you make sure you pray for them at the same time. All right? And every fellowship, I think, has people uh, who are guilty of this type of thing. All right. That's quite surprising, isn't it? And avoid them, notice it says. Right? It's not what you normally hear in the body of Christ today. And often they'll say, oh, they could say they love me in that place. And very often people say that type of thing, and what they mean is, you've got to accept me as I am, God's not going to deal with my life, you've just got to put up with me. <laughs> and that's really what they mean. Now, we're not in that, you know, we're not. We're not going to have raw sewage around in the fellowship. Every one of us, surely, is in a fellowship because we want our life sorted out. And therefore, we've got to make sure that we do that, and we walk in light with one another. And we're not going to be put under black by, by that type of thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you've got a whole list of them here. Verse 9 and onwards. 1 Corinthians and chapter 9. I beg your pardon. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. And unfortunately, the people who'd read that were cutting themselves off from everyone around, right? And they were becoming real exclusive. 
They had nothing to do with the world or anything. So he has to correct that. In verse 10 he says, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then ye needs, ye must needs go out of the world. So if you work with a fornicator, well, you know, he's a non-Christian, he's got no light in there. And you must be careful in your dealings with him that you don't try and impose Christian standards upon him and make it a basis for fellowship with him. Right? It's very important that you don't do that. I was talking to Roz in the car coming here, and I was just saying about that verse, cast not your pearls before swine, and so often we do. You know, and I named a certain politician, and I said, really, he's, got, he's Satan's voice box in this day, isn't he? You know, and Roz and I agreed that he really was. And, and then Roz said to me, do you know, if you said that to some people today, they'd think you should be locked up. And I said, yeah, because they're not enlightened. But I suddenly realized that, of course, I wouldn't dare say that to people who aren't enlightened. In fact, there are some who are enlightened that I wouldn't dare say it to either. <laughs> and that comes under the basis of don't cast your pearls before swine. We must beware lest in our workplaces we actually expect them to understand what we understand. You have to make a compromise, you know, somewhere. And I got on very well with non-Christians, right? But then, of course, the sting always came in the tail right at the end. You mustn't uh, compromise your own personal beliefs, but you have to actually have some relationship with these people you work with. You can't just stand out like an iceberg. It doesn't help your witness. All right, so it corrects that. Now, verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother, here's a Christian, be a fornicator. Now, here's a chap who is fornicating. That means he's involved in sexual sin. It may include adultery or something like that. And the important thing is he is unrepentant about it. That's the point. In other words, he's coming along to the meetings. Everyone knows that uh, he's committing adultery with a woman over there and he's a married man. And it says, don't you put up with it. Have nothing to do with the fellow. Right? Get him out and fast. That's it. It's not talking about the person who may have a hang-up and a problem you know, and really wants God to help him in this particular area. This is a chap who is an unrepentant sinner, as far as this is concerned. Then, or covetous, he wants money. And sometimes in fellowships, you get people join, and they look as if they're joining the fellowship, but do you know, they're insincere in their commitment. They're in for what they can get, really. And some join occasionally for money. And they think, well, you know, here's a bunch of gullible Christians. I'm a Christian. Great, I may as well live on the fat of the land. And that's it. And sometimes you meet them. Now that will come under covetous. Or an idolater. And here's a chap who's in the midst, but he's worshipping at the local heathen temple as well. You have nothing to do with him at all. Or a railer. Now a railer is someone who is all the time speaking about other people. Right? They haven't got a good word to say for anyone. They're gossips, is the word I would use. Gossip, gossip, gossip. On about everyone who comes inside, and they don't like them, and they make it clear. And it says, have nothing to do with such a person. Next, a drunkard, right, coming into the meeting, filled with other spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Or, and by the way, we have the right to take such a one and to actually escort him from the premises. Right? Because we are not to mix with such a one. Or an extortioner. Now, this, only, this isn't just with money. This is with anything. They're, frankly, too demanding. 
They demand and they demand and they demand all the time and it's too much and they're extortioning it out of you and sometimes using spiritual blackmail to get it out of you. Again, they're expecting too much and we're not there to be their bond servants. We're there to serve the Lord. And then it says, with such an one, no, not to eat. In other words, you don't even eat with this and that really don't have any communion as far as they're concerned. You don't sup with them, don't go into their house, you don't have a social evening with such a one. Okay? That's amazing, isn't it? You don't often hear this preached in the body of Christ, but I thought tonight it would be nice to go through some of these lovely verses. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, and it's in the Bible, folks. Amazing. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, we have become pappy in the church, haven't we, really? Not happy, pappy. We become really soft, you know, and then we wonder why the devil is walking all over the work of the Lord. It's very wrong. Now this one, verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema maranatha. And some people in this day and age could read that and still not understand what it means. So let's go through it. Here is a Christian he's talking about. And this Christian is out of fellowship and likes being out of fellowship. He's refusing to love the Lord anymore. Right? Well, I'm just out of fellowship, you know, and, and that's it. So what do you do with such a chap? Well, you don't waste time with him. You've only got a few years left as it is, right? You don't. You pray for him, of course, and you may uh, pass a word, you know, in the street, and you might look out for any signs that he's coming back. Okay, but look what it says. If any man refuse to love the Lord, let him be anathema, which means accursed. Let him be accursed as far as you're concerned. Now, someone who was accursed, you didn't go out of your way to be with them. That's the point, all right? Let him be anathema. And then it says, Maranatha, the Lord's coming soon. Praise God. So you haven't got time to, to waste your time with people who have the same free will that you've got, and they're choosing it to use it for the devil. You must choose it to use it for the Lord. Get on with the work. That's the important thing. Otherwise, you know, the devil finally captures the whole work of God. Right? Get so many Christians out of fellowship and all the other Christians spend all their time with those who are out of fellowship and meanwhile, nothing else gets done at all. That's a very clever ploy from the devil. And this says, no sir, we've got work to do. Let's get on with it. And they'll give an account one day to God. They will. And you'll give an account as well. All right. Uh, two Thessalonians. In two Thessalonians and chapter three, Two Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6, first of all. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. So a man's walking in serious error there. Make sure that you, you know, don't come along too close as far as he's concerned. Then verse 14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. That's it. Over in 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5, One Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5. If any man teach otherwise, 
And this is said to Timothy, And consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. That's a heretic, by the way. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife, strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw yourselves. That's what it says. This is a personal thing that you must do. Now the principle behind all of this verses, behind all of these verses is this, that bad company corrupts even good morals. And do you know that's true? If you hang around the person that's a gossip, before long you're going to be a gossip. Yes, you will. You pick it up because it's so nice. And that's the trouble with sin, you know. It's so enjoyable. That's the problem over it. If, we did, if sin wasn't enjoyable, we wouldn't have a problem with sin. That's it, you see. As Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything except temptation. <laughs> that's the problem here. And sometimes we feel we're stronger than we really are. But if you mix with someone who is rebellious, you will pick up the rebellion. Yes, you will. It's very hard not to pick up the rebellion. You will pick up the wrong attitudes. You will pick up the bitterness that may be within them. You will pick it up. And so it says, don't put yourself in a place where your good morality is corrupted, as so easily happens. So can you see today, we have seen two sides. We've seen those who are with us and those who are against us. We've, we've had a sweet and sour, if you like. We've had that which is sweet and that which is bitter. But these things are important in the life of a fellowship. If we are to go on, we need our wits about us and we need discernment. Above everything, we need to know where we stand as far as the Word of God is concerned. Of course Satan will try and stop this work. Of course he will. Do you think he likes it that the tapes are going far and wide? I had a woman today ring me up and she said that uh, her sister had been in, I think it was the Jehovah's Witnesses, Ross thinks it's in the Mormons and we can't decide which, but this woman had been taken over by a false sect and that she, this woman decided she'd just start going through the salvation tapes and her sister came in. By the second tape, she'd given up the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, whichever it was, or perhaps it was both, we don't know, <laughs> you see. But you've given them up, and they've now ploughed right through the tapes, and this woman is flowing in the Holy Spirit now. Of course Satan doesn't like that. Of course he doesn't like the other work that is going on in our own fellowship. Of course he'll try to stop it. Of course he doesn't like the fact that we speak freedom in a situation where bondage is coming in. Of course he doesn't like the fact that we're trying to preach religious freedom where denominationalism is trying to take over. Of course he doesn't like it. Of course he'll try to stop the work. And that's why we need from everyone this commitment that I've talked about today. A commitment that only God will call you to account over. I'm not going to do it, but God will do it. That's his That's His uh, purpose. He, he's going to call you to account. But we need it. That's why we need people who will not just be members in name only, but will really take on the burden of the work here in their prayers. Right? I'll tell you this. If someone speaks against the work here, it's as if they're attacking my own children to me. It really is. I know when people are honest about it, that's fine. But I find I get really emotionally upset 
because God has put me in this place, and I'm going to be as faithful as I can be in this particular place. Now, every one of us needs that heart if we're going to see God's work thriving in this place. That means you cannot just abrogate your responsibility, right? And say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm freewheeling this one. You can't do that. All was actively reaching out to the Lord. Before every meeting, praying for that particular meeting, asking God to bless the other meeting on the Sunday morning that you're not going to. This is what is involved in our total commitment. And I praise the Lord indeed that I will stand as you will stand before the Lord. And I will be answerable to him. You will be answerable to him as well over these things. My prayer is only that I may be found faithful. And if in our fellowship we can produce an atmosphere where people can move forward if they want to, then I will be well satisfied. But we will not permit the devil to be glorified in the midst. So we must discern what's in the heart, first of all, in our own hearts, and then in the hearts of our brothers and sisters, so that we know who's with us. Okay, that's important. And we know then the level of commitment of the people we're having fellowship with. And then we also are able to spot these troublesome people who will trouble your own soul. It's important. Let's end today just by reading a passage in 2 Timothy which really shows the importance of the Word of God in this task. And forget the chapter divide here. I'm going to go from verse 13 of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 13 onwards. And let's read it with fear, the fear of the Lord in our hearts. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learnt, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learnt them. And isn't that lovely, by the way? Paul says this, and this is the point I made earlier. When you think of the things that I've taught you, remember my life, he says, knowing from whom you learnt them. In other words, was I a meddler? Was I one that handled the word of God wrongly? And they were all able to say, no, this man was genuine. In other words, his relationship with God was right. And that's what I meant earlier when I said, when anyone ministers to you, make sure they're in right relationship with God. And Paul constantly did this. He gave teaching, but then he pointed at his own life and said, like you've seen in me. And I believe that we should, when in our ministry, be able to say to these folk, listen, folks, if you receive my ministry, you're going to be like I am. Right? And that will have one of two reactions. <laughs> they'll either say, oh, I didn't realize that. Heavens, I'm getting out of here. Or they'll say, that's really what I want. Right? So he says, knowing from whom thou hast learned them. And verse 15, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He will judge, preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season, when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. That's the important thing. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. 
For the time will come, and I would say, and now is, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Itching ears. You can't keep them alone. Got to hear more of a particular thing all the time and collecting the teachers that they want. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Do you see? It's hard sometimes. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. And then on to these verses. And verse 7 is one that I pray everyone in our fellowship will be able to say. For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. May the Lord bless his word tonight to us all. Amen.